Hello, this is Toby Haydock's Who's Round, but probably not the one you were expecting. Okay, I don't know when this one is coming out. It should have actually come out before the Mark Ayres interview. That's when it was conducted. But for really boring reasons, uh, my notes weren't very clear. I've discovered that I'd forgotten to stick it into the lot that I'd edited and put together for release. So I've just done it. I don't know when it's coming out. Um, but because we're counting down to the end, it's worth getting out as close to when it was done as possible. Because obviously we're now nobbling off the last few stories. Um, so... Uh, Thanks to Margot Hayhoe for this one. It's worth saying before we nip to the uh, interview, which is by Skype, so do not adjust your set. Although if you're watching us on the television, I would have to query your sanity and um, how you're doing it. Anyway, um, Margot Hayhoe, um, who I interviewed many, many moons ago, it's worth re-emphasising. <laughs> Once a production manager, always a production manager. Bless her. Um looked at my list of stories that I hadn't completed and did a spreadsheet saying who she knew from those stories, where they lived, so therefore whether it was possible for me to interview them or not, and how well she knew them, so, you know, how much she thought she might be able to influence uh, encouraging people to take part, and got me loads and loads of really good interviewees, particularly of the type of people that haven't been interviewed before. Um, this next gentleman has been interviewed before, so we, we skirt around Dr. Yes, you know, here's the thing. I didn't think we'd covered Power of the Daleks. Well, I spoke to Alexandra Tyne and Sandra Reid. We did sort of talk about Power, but I didn't think I really talked about the story, so I hadn't crossed that off my list. So that's the one I needed to target from this gentleman. Uh, but also, I've just been going through my list, and I crossed off the Sea Devils, and I can't for the life of me remember who I talked about from it. So I had this horrible feeling of going, oh, no, I, I, I haven't covered the Sea Devils, but fortunately we do in this story... But I thought I'd covered it before, so um, do let me know who who was in the Sea Devils that I spoke to at some point during 2013, because I can't for the life of me remember. Anyway, it doesn't really matter, because we cover it in this one. Um, unleash the interview. Thank you to Margot Hayho for the slice of a lemon drizzle cake. She, uh, she produced wonders. Uh, anyway, here's the interview. Uh, well... Uh... I've Skyped Australia and I've Skyped New Zealand and now I am on the phone to Spain because Doctor Who is all about uh, uh, lengthening our horizons. I'm delighted to be speaking to an uh, a director of some of the best episodes of Doctor Who, so I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name is Michael Bryant um, and, and I am beginning to feel a little bit like the Barry Cryer of uh, my episodes of Doctor Who. I, I worked on... Um, I worked on them as a very young man and as a very young director, and uh, it's now all coming back to haunt me. Well, the the beauty of this podcast is that we need not to confine ourselves to Doctor Who, and of course you've written a fantastic autobiography where you go into great detail about your work on, on Doctor Who. Um, my onus, this late in my project, is to get something about Power of the Daleks, which is one of the few stories I haven't covered, directed by Christopher Barry, Patrick Troughton's debut as the Doctor, Wrangling the Daleks... That's a heady combination. Yes, I mean, that was... Um, my, my biggest memory of that one was filming at Ealing Studios, um, where we did 
an awful lot of model shots and uh, stuff about there being lots and lots of Daleks. Um, I mean, there always was a problem with the Daleks. There were only, I think there were only ever three of them. There may have been a fourth one later, but, you know, back in the old times of Doctor Who, there were just these three Daleks. So in part of the Daleks, there was meant to be this factory uh, making Daleks, a Dalek factory producing the shells and then putting these sort of blobs of jelly inside each one. Um, and we, you know, as you know, the, the budgets were tiny in those days, so um, we couldn't really afford to have lots and lots of Daleks made by special effects. So um, I was wandering around Woolworths uh, one weekend as we were preparing the production, and I discovered that I think it was, pro I think it was probably Metal or, or a group like that were producing Daleks, and they were only about a quid each. So um, we solved our hundreds of miniature Dalek problems by um, going out to Woolworths and buying Daleks, or at least visual effects department went down and bought them. And um, it, it's interesting that, you know, you, you became a director, but your, your relationship with directors was initially forged on programmes like Doctor Who, working your way up the ranks. So I wonder how retrospectively you look at some of the directors that you worked on, specifically, say, on Doctor Who, you worked on with Douglas Camfield on The Crusade, Christopher Barry on Power of the Daleks, Hugh David uh, on Fury from the Deep. Um, I mean, were they directors that you learnt from, either in good ways or, or not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you. I mean, that was that was the joy of uh, you know when the BBC uh, was really a broadcasting organisation that made all its own shows. Um, it, it, it it employed people from the theatre. In, in my day, when I joined, you pretty well had to have either been working in the theatre or working in film in order to get into this new medium of television. And I'd, I'd worked. Um, I'd worked as an uh, as an actor in theatre. I'd worked as a stage manager, and I'd um, been uh, an actor in films. Um, and I'd made a load of little sort of eight millimetre movies myself. So uh, I was able to get in on the ground floor of BBC Two, and then immediately you start working with all these wonderful directors. And I mean, not just those excellent Doctor Who directors you know that you mentioned, but people like Alan Bridges and Peter Hammond. Um, it, it, I mean, just a wonderful training ground. So you start off as an ASM, uh, which is a bit like being a stage manager in, in the uh, in the theatre. Um, you start off as an ASM, the fourth person in the office, the most junior person in the office, and you're just learning and learning and learning. Um, and then you become a director. Oddly enough, as an ASM, you probably learn because you were at the director's side all the time. I mean, you marked out the rehearsal room floors. Um, you did the prompting, you, you know, you had the script in your hand, you, you sort of, well, yes, you ran the rehearsals for the director in, in as much as you made sure people were called for the right times and were present and so on, and you were there beside the director. So it was just a wonderful learning process. I mean, just sheer magic, and it's a tragedy that it, that doesn't happen anymore. And the question I think one must always ask people like yourself who've been so gracious and kind enough to talk about Doctor Who over the years is if there was a job that you'd done that you wished people had constantly asked questions about and showed interest in, what what would you have chosen to be doing DVD commentaries on and, and, and wanting people to see now, so many years after the event? 
Well, I did, I did what I, uh, sort of later on in my career, I mean, there were lots of things. I, I thought Secret Army was one of the finest productions I worked on. I mean, Jared Glaster was a superb producer. It was beautifully written, wonderful actors in it. And when I joined Secret Army, um, despite everything I'd done beforehand, I felt, you know, I felt I really had to be on my mettle. I really had to prove myself. I, I, uh, I thought Secret Army was a superb show, and I just loved doing it. It, it was, it was magical. Warship, again, was a, a fascinating show to do, simply because my hobby is boats and sailing and the sea, and it always has been. And all of a sudden, um, I, you know, there I was given a Leander-class frigate, 250 guys. Um, a, uh, a helicopter, boats. I mean, it was it was something which I had a jolly good basic background in. So I started off with an advantage from other, although a lot of, oddly enough, a lot of directors, quite a lot of directors are into boats and sailing as are actors. It's something, I don't know, it's a hobby which uh, seems to go with the entertainment industry. Yes, I remember um, the actor Richard Beale, who I know you've used, is also one who uh, I think he, I, I did a DVD commentary with him, and at the age of ninety or something, he just bought a new motorboat or something. Has <laughs> he just bought a new motorboat? Yes, I mean, dear Richard, I mean, I'm in constant, well, constant touch. I mean, we are in touch. I keep begging him to come over and see me, but he doesn't like aeroplane travel. Yeah, Richard was a great friend through the years through sailing. Another actor was Royston Tickner, who drove the motorboat in the... In the Sea Devils. Sea Devils, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, and he and I sailed to the Channel Islands, to Sherbourne, I mean, each in our own boat and not side by side. I mean, we would just say, I'll see you in Sherbourne next weekend or I'll see you in Jersey next weekend or Albany or wherever. Um, yeah, I mean, great guy. He's, uh, sadly, he's no longer with us, but he's, um, yeah, he's buried in Gibraltar, um, which is not so far from where I live. Um, so yeah, I mean, people people work to uh, the boats and the sea and sailing are something which actors and directors seem to drift into uh, more than playing golf. I suspect. Um, I mean, another show I really liked, which nobody looks at now, it was the one called Hideaway, which was um, a six-part a six-part film uh, written by a guy called Charlie Humphreys, uh, which was about villains. Um, yeah, about villains. And, uh, I mean, it was just a a real pleasure to it was a real pleasure to make. But uh, I, I think it's never come out on DVD, so I guess nobody will ever see it. Um, what what else was what else I think was good? Uh, oh, things like Blood Money, which was um, uh, a series I did for Jerry Glaster, and we ended up with an awful lot of people from Secret Army in it: um, um, Angela Richards and Bernie Hepton and uh, uh, Stephen Yardley. Uh, a lot of people from that, but it was it was a really you know these were shows which I felt very stretched as a more mature director in making. I really felt I had to work hard at it. But I got to make those shows, I think, in no small part to doing Doctor Who, which was, um, as a young director in those days, you could be doing said cars, you could be doing the Doctors, you could be doing uh, the various sort of bi-weekly soaps and things that you could be doing. Uh, but Doctor Who was a show where you 
because you did it from scratch. You um, you had uh, really almost total responsibility other than the main cast and the script, other than those items. Um, you, you created what you wanted for the sets, you created the monsters, unless they were established monsters, you created them in the way you wanted to see it, um, you created the style. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful training ground. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful to the, to the series for um, the experience it gave me and the experience it gave me in doing effects, working with stuntmen, um, doing fights, doing um, visual effects, doing um, color separation overlay, was what the BBC called it, which is called chroma key these days and uh, other things. Um, so it was, a, it was a great training ground for a young director, um, and I don't think that exists anymore because when I look at the modern who's, you know, I can very much see that they're run from the front office, and I think the director comes in and pushes the buttons and doesn't get. I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect doesn't get that much chance to do it his or her way. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I have spoken to directors of the new series, and I, I was having this conversation with a cameraman yesterday and with a director today, actually, about a, such a thing as a house style. Whereas with Doctor Who, I think Doctor Who fans will know just by looking at a clip whether Douglas Camfield directed it, whether you directed it, because different designers, different directors, different composers came in and did Doctor Who each week. So actually the show changed depending on the personnel and it was that very variety that, that made it interesting. Yeah, and that was part. That was also partly the fact that you were doing either a four-part or a six-part story. I, mean, I think most of the ones I did were six-part, but so it was a complete story that you were doing. Um, the length of uh, a four-parter is uh, the length of almost the length of three feature films. So it, it, it is an entire production that you have the time and possibility to do it in the way that you think is the way it should be done. And how influential is the producer in terms of, I mean, as a director, you worked under Barry Letts and Philip Hinchcliffe, and it's fair to say that their approaches to Doctor Who were very different. So did you have to change what you were doing as a result of that sort of influence? Um, Barry would... Uh... Barry was uh, Barry would attend meetings with you know visual effects and so on. He would very often. I mean, Barry was a good producer. He didn't say an awful lot, but when he did say something, it was worth it was worth listening to. Um, he his input his in, because he was a director. He had a pretty good idea what was possible. Um, and not so much what was possible, what you could do in the time for the money. It's not so much what is possible, but what you can do in the time for the money and do well. Um, so he, his scripts always came to you in a workable fashion. And things like um, the Maggot story, for example, he'd lined up jet aircraft upon the maggots and he'd... Um, uh, he, he'd done some sort of deal with the local military on... Uh, sea Devils. I mean, he'd done a tremendous. I mean, it was Barry had organised all the stuff with the Royal Navy, so that was already there for me to pick up. Of course, I could do it however I wanted to do it, and you know, I some facility I got some further facilities out of the Navy, and uh, um, sometimes I didn't use exactly what Barry had set up, but basically he set it up. So he was a very um, 
and, and in the gallery, he would tell you if, if things weren't working, he would uh, um, say he would offer a solution. But but he he understood what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. He was a very knowledgeable, very not. He was a director. He was a writer. Um, he absolutely adored science fiction. He knew what science fiction was. And so when you were talking casting with him or when you were, I mean, you know, there's the famous story of me wanting to cast a baddie woman in um, mm. Colony in Space, one of those sort of anecdotes that goes on. Um, and, and Barry was all for it. You know, Barry went, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, let's go for that. Yeah, that's fine. Um, the fact that we were then stopped is neither here nor there. Um, Barry was somebody that you could bounce ideas off. He, he, he was a really good guy. Um Philip was, of course, much less experienced. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know what Philip had produced before, um, but Philip had his own. Uh, Philip had his own style, and I can't, I can't remember what shows I did for him, but I think it was probably the first Tom Baker. Yeah, you did Re Revenge of the Cybermen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was sort of taking taking over on that, and Barry Letts was still there, actually supervising it, and Barry had really developed the script and everything else. So, yes, Philip would come to the run-throughs and, you know, he, he would he would give notes and, you know, have an opinion, and that was fine. But I didn't... Uh, that show was very much under his influence. Um, and then Robots of Death is a much more, hand, yeah, p pure Hinchcliffe. Yeah. I mean, Robots... Um, I, I, <laughs> I spent an awful lot of time trying not to meet up with him because I I don't uh, I, I don't think that we always gelled in terms of you know what I thought I wanted to do and um, he thought some of my casting was a bit odd and was a bit concerned about it because he frankly had a different concept for the show you know he saw it in a different way to the way I saw it um, and. That's fair enough, you know. That's a, that's okay. So my my uh, my intention was to get as much of my vision for the for the show uh, onto the screen, um, because I've always believed as a director that you always must do what you think is right and what you think is correct and what you think is good, um, because actually you're not get, if you do it badly, if you do it badly. You're not going to get employed again, and you're going to get blamed for it. And if you do it well, you are going to get employed again, and you are going to um, reap the reward of having done a successful show. And it is no good if you're unsuccessful, turning around and going, oh, but so-and-so thought it would be better that way, or so-and-so thought it would be better the other way. It doesn't gel. It, but back in those days, it was possible for a director to be arrogant, and I, I, I think I probably was pretty horrid and arrogant. <laughs> Um, I think today it's absolutely impossible for a director to be arrogant. And, and so therefore you get productions which are made by the front office rather than by the director. And is that is that arrogance, uh, um, purely creative arrogance? And if so, where, do, where does that come from in you? Well, I think you have to believe in yourself, don't you? You have to... If you, um, which doesn't mean you don't have doubts and you don't and you don't question what you're doing, whether it's right or wrong, but you you, you just set off with you know it's like sort of carrying your little Olympic torch. You you set off and you go, this is what I'm going to do. This show, this is how it's going to be. I'm going to do. I can see it like this, 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 and this. And so you did things. Um, and and I, 
tended to do that on all my productions, that I would just do what I thought, well, I, I, I believed I was being paid to direct them. So I picked up the baton and ran with the baton and did it in the way that I thought was the best possible way. Of course, you did things wrong. Of course, you made mistakes. And of course, uh, you know, there were producers, um, there, there were times when I did, I, I was doing something which involved fireplaces once and Bill Sellers, who was a very experienced American producer, said, Michael, that just doesn't work. So, you know, that's it. And you go, yep, you're right. It doesn't work, so I won't do it. Um, yeah, you make mistakes, but then what you're doing when you make those mistakes is you're looking for a producer whose opinion you respect to say to you, that's a mistake, or that doesn't work, or that's too long, or that's boring, or maybe you could do a bit more with that. So that's what you're, you're looking for a producer to do, um, to come to your work and give you their honest, experienced opinion uh, but you're not looking for a producer to tell you how to, uh, you know, how to how to paint by numbers. You're not looking for a producer who's going to. Um, so yeah, the arrogance. Um, I think it's. I think it's inevitable that you, if you, I don't know, with multi-camera television and things, it was a different world. You, you, you did actually. You were the top. Somebody once described filming or described television as a sort of pyramid. And there's, you know, at the very point of the pyramid, there's a director, and under him, under the director, is the first assistant and the cameraman. And then there's all the rest of the team going more and more and more down that pyramid. And it's only actually the half a dozen people at the towards the top of the pyramid who are conscious of what is happening in the making of the production. Everyone else isn't. So you need to be a leader. You need, I, you know, I think, I think that you need to have leadership qualities, and you need to be a loner. And you need to be able to go, I used to go off quietly by myself and just have a think about things. And uh, and I didn't feel I needed to ask others' opinions about anything unless I was talking to an expert. Uh, and then I would ask the expert's opinion um, and listen very carefully to what the expert had to say. And you were. It's interesting how all the um, when you look at all the production that you've done and the various people I've spoken to with this, how every the sort of very few degrees of separation. And I noticed when you talked about um, Philip Hinchcliffe being surprised at your casting. I have to say, one of the things that stands out about your productions is they're uniformly excellently cast. Did you make? Did you go to theatre? Did you watch other television? How did you acquire your sort of guest actors that you cast yourself? Well, it went. I mean, it went back to your sort of first, your, your first, uh, your first question statement about being an ASM um, and starting off at the bottom. Because I was an ASM standing beside all these talented directors, these talented directors were casting wonderful actors. They knew all about the good actors. Um, and as a production manager as well, you were, you were working for directors who were casting. So I had a little book. I had a little black book. And whenever I worked with a, um, whenever I worked with a uh, director um, who had cast actors I thought were particularly good, I just wrote their names down in my little book. And to a great extent, uh, and when I was watching television as well, or when I was going to the theatre, um, I would 
just put into the book just the name, not not not, not their not their agencies or anything, but just their name. I put the name of the actor that I went, that's a good actor. That one really is clever and that one really is smart. Um, so I just write their name down in the book. And so I could almost cast a show from just flicking through my little book, which had indeed lots and lots of names in it. Um, I also, uh, there was a vision mix I worked with and, uh, and we, we decided that the most important thing about an actor was how intelligent they were, how bright they were. And so what you always want are really clever, smart, bright actors working with you who aren't necessarily going to do what you do. You know, actors have to be arrogant as well. Actors have to. That, of course they offer you, and of course they will do things differently from the way you imagine, but that's, that's why you employ them, because they're going to bring what they think is good to the role, um, and as a director, unless it, uh, as a director, you of course you have the final word. You can say no, no, no. You've got to do it like this, or like that, because that's uh, because sometimes one actor can be treading on the ground of another artist's um, territory, making their performance harder, difficult, or whatever. So, so you become a sort of judge and jury. But really, what you're looking for are actors who bring something special, something different to what they're doing. And in terms of, uh, we often talk of actors and producers and the stars and the names that we all see, but obviously over the years you worked with, you know, cameramen and lighting technicians and designers and perhaps some of the, the lesser sung heroes of television. So if you were to be curating your museum of television, of prize exhibits of people that you think perhaps we, we should be looking at and work we sh whose work we should be appreciating, is there anybody that springs to mind? Oh, I mean, I mean... Uh... I, I work with some brilliant designers, and, and one of the problems I've had, which is why I had a little black book, is I have a memory like a sieve. <laughs> uh, and pulling names out of the air is not uh, is not very easy for me. Um, generally speaking, I was very careful as to who the cameramen were, who the set who the set designers were, who the camera crew were, um, and I always and I. I I had favourites. I absolutely had favourites, and I would, I would do anything I could to um, to work with, uh, to have those favourites working with me um, doing the shows. I mean, I had a wonderful production manager for years and years and years called Ron Jones, who directed some Doctor Who's yeah. under John Nathan Turner, and Ron was the most brilliant production manager, and he would. Uh, I, I would just rely on him enormously. I would believe in what he said. And he and he knew how to handle me. He knew when I was going too far. And he was perfectly capable of walking up to me and saying, Michael, you're going too far. Stop it. Dave. Um, when it was, when the risks I were taking were too great or um, what I wanted was too, um, you know, just ridiculously ambitious. He would never say it as a matter of opinion or whatever. He would only say it in a professional term. But production managers like uh, like Ron Jones, uh, absolutely wonderful. Uh, Ken Ken Sharp, who designed uh, robots, robots, absolutely brilliant man. I mean, that show is there's nothing special about that show at all, actually, except the design. <laughs> I mean, it is the design. It is the design concept that makes Robots of Death something that people talk about. Um, if it had been done as a sort of space 1999 with, you know, square-jawed guys in space, in, you know, in uh, uniforms with little badges on their lapels and all that jazz, and the robots have been, you know, something out of Will Smith's um, movies, um, 
I don't think it would have been the popular show it is today. It is Ken's design. But having said that, there was Martin... um, The BBC in those days was so full of talent. And you just... uh, you just gravitated because of all this training you'd had as an ASM and a production manager. You knew who were the good, who were the good designers, and in costume and in makeup and uh, in all those departments, uh, even in visual effects. You knew the people because of all that back experience as assisting assistants. You knew the people that you not that were more talented than the others, but they, that you just knew you could work with, whose ideas you liked, who were sympathetic to the sort of things that you wanted to do. And, you, I mean, you you stopped, you haven't, you directed EastEnders in, what, 1995, and that was, that was an end to it, and you, so... Do you having you you were an actor first, and then you went behind the scenes? Do you miss did did you miss acting? And then when you stopped directing, I mean, do do you miss it, or are you somebody that draws a line full stop onwards? Um, the the acting, I, I I you can look at your work and just know that you're just not the most talented actor in the world. I mean, I think there's quite a few actors out there who. Uh, just go, uh, and I just never could see greatness there, uh, partly because I had such a struggle to learn the dicky birds. <laughs> um, yeah, I was a, I was a child actor, and as a child actor, you basically just go on. I worked a lot of Bromley Rep, I did stacks and stacks of things as a kid, age sort of 13 or 14 at Bromley Rep, um, and I did Little Round House, Mr. Pepper Shipping for. Thames, uh, no, for associated rediffusion. I mean, I just went out and did what I'd been learned at drama school, which was, you know, to say the words and not trip over the furniture, but I knew I wasn't great. And when I got to be 17, 18, 19, um, I, I stopped looking really young for my age, and I started having to play parts that were nearer that, uh, nearer my own age, and I knew I wasn't very good somehow. I knew I wasn't... Um, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I did a lot of theatre then, and I knew I was okay. I mean, I wasn't bad. I just wasn't. I just knew I wasn't brilliant. But in a way, the world sort of, you know, I mean, the fickle finger of fate happened that I, I started to become. Uh, I started. I spent a season in rep at the Little Theatre Great Yarmouth, and I went there as an actor and ASM, and then from there I progressed to becoming a, a stage manager on tour, um, as well as touring and things like Charlie's Arms, but I became a stage manager as well. And that just was the perfect um, springboard to moving into the BBC when I was 21 with this big influx of BBC Two of new people coming in. I had all the right credentials. I'd been to drama school. I was an actor. I'd been an assistant stage manager. I'd been a stage manager. And so to be an ASM at the BBC in those days was just the perfect move. And I was just thrilled to be an ASM. Um, and once I'd been an ASM, uh, I knew I could be a production manager. So I was angling to be a production manager from almost the moment I got a permanent job at the Beeb. Um, and I, and within a couple of years, I got this production manager's job, which was great. And I was working with all these brilliantly talented directors. And so I started saying I wanted to be a director. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I mean, it was in my blood. I'm actually sitting in my office here in Spain and I'm looking up on up on the bookshelf is the Palliad Bolex 
eight millimeter cine camera that I bought myself out of the first feature film I made, aged um, 12 or 13 years of age. And I still got it. I used to go out and make movies. So it was always sort of there in my blood to be a director. I mean, I just liked making little movies. Um, so at the B, so at the B, as a production manager, I went around saying I want to be a, I want to be a director, and then they put me on the course. And I went, my goodness me, oh dear, this is hard work. This really is difficult. Well, look, I've I've exceeded my half hour that I said I'd take of your time, uh, and I'm I'm very pleased that we didn't um, uh, stick just to Doctor Who because actually. That you've done the DVD commentaries uh, and you've been interviewed before about Doc Two, so I was I was keen to get your overview more. So I will ask you to nominate a charity. Um, I, I I would uh, I, I have a lot of doubts about charities. Um, I think the Salvation Army is probably one of the most honest charities, and I suspect the RSPCA is. Um, I, I worry a lot about charities that I know for a fact that the executives of a lot of these charities are on huge amounts of money, and there are more than one executive. I think the old ones like the Sally Army and uh, Battersea Dogs Home and the RSPCA are probably fairly honest charities. So uh, if anybody wants to send a quid to them or five or whatever, I'd, I'd be thrilled and uh, Frankly, I can't imagine they'll send very much on the benefit of having an interview with me. But there you go. Not at all. Not it's been it's been wonderful. I, I, and the the final two then. Um, I find you in Spain. What what was it that took you to Spain? Why Spain? Um, it's it's absolutely pure chance. I went to live in I went to live in France. Uh, I went to live in France. I lived in France for about ten years, and then. Uh, for a load of uh, very private personal reasons, it became no longer possible to live in France, and so I moved. Uh, I moved to Spain um, because it's by the sea, and the sun shines, and uh, I can go sailing. And uh, we speak in the fiftieth year of Doctor Who. Uh, we know there's far more to your career than Doctor Who, but uh, the Doctor Who fans will be listening. What is your message to them in this illustrious fiftieth year of Doctor Who? My message to whom? The Doctor Who fans will be listening to this podcast. I, I, I think it's uh, I think it's just great that uh, Doctor Who has survived so long. I'm, I'm I, I keep meeting young people um, who, particularly with the older Doctor Who's, are busy making their own Doctor Who stories on YouTube. I met a young man in uh, in Spain when I was buying a house who was who was directing his own little. Doctor Who stories using the models and moving the thing. I mean, um, I think I, I think that if it sparks your imagination and it makes you want to do writing or directing or acting or something, uh, Doctor Who has been the best um, education for um, young people in television that I know of and uh, yeah enjoy, uh, keep enjoying and keep being an imaginative and creative and trying to do it differently that's wonderful well I'll say goodbye to you properly when I've done this but for the purposes of the interview um, for sharing your memories uh, and for doing so across borders uh, Michael E. Bryant thank you very much my pleasure bye bye now that was brilliant thank you Michael I hope that was okay for you yeah, how interesting. It's really nice to do one that isn't sort of like, as I say, I do, I do find myself churning through these anecdotes, and I've actually, um, I was in two minds whether to do yours or not, because 
I get so, uh, you know, um, everyone wants the same stories in a way, and it gets yeah, no, I totally um, understand. It's really nice to do an interview that was different. Oh. I really enjoyed that. Oh, I'm pleased, I'm pleased it was. It was, um... My thanks to Michael. Very interesting stuff about charities. Um, although he then mentioned three. Uh, Battersea Dogs Home is battersea.org.uk. The RSPCA is rspca.org.uk. And would you believe it, but the Salvation Army is another dot org dot uk so um so i think you just choose one of those uh you know whichever whichever one appeals to you the most you do them all if you like but i know i know times are tough um so choose one of those salvation army is all one word by the way salvation army all one word dot org dot uk the who's around project was supposed to conclude in 2013 but it didn't there will be more to come so uh, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself and tell me why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, um, my name is um, I'm a little bit worried about the introduction citing me as a victim. You told me this was going to be nice and gentle and I didn't have a thing to worry about. And I presume you're talking to me about Doctor Who because I've been in it twice. Strangely enough, I don't know how th- through history, I've landed up in so many different forms of the production of Doctor Who. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Confessions of Dorian Gray, Series 4. A toast, everyone, to Dorian Gray, the finest travelling companion a man could wish for. To Dorian Gray! There's something unusual about you. You aren't quite like the other Englishmen I've met. When you were born, there were no motor cars, televisions or aeroplanes. Thanks for reminding me. I wonder, sometimes, how it must feel to be you. You were running from something. Yes. What? It's difficult to explain. Ancient creatures live here, Dorian. The forest and the lake provide them with a safe habitat and everything they need to survive. It's isolated, so they keep out of the way of humanity. And humanity generally has no idea they're even here. Generally? It's bloody typical. We can't even go on holiday without you attracting something supernatural. Who says that thing is supernatural? Myths and legends have to start somewhere. But why us? Why is it always us? Time goes on. Dorian grows cold and hard, and one by one, he turns on those who love him, until finally, he destroys himself. Stop! (sighs) Big finish. We love stories.